Amen. Mel, sometimes I'll come up uh, for announcements and then you put me on the spot. I need to put you on the spot. Uh, during your announcements, there was somebody in the front row who was a bit of a heckler. Yeah. Can you promise that. me that you won't heckle me during my message? I've already heard your message <laughs> once, Dave. I've done my heckling. All right. <laughs> My wife and I started dating without ever having met. And you might be thinking to yourself, I don't think David knows what the word dating means. <laughs> and you'd probably be correct. My wife and I were set up by mutual friends. We were meeting together at a soccer banquet. And my friends don't attend church. And so they were saying, well, you know, this works perfect. Dave is a Christian. Jenna is a Christian. We'll set them up. It has to work. And so at that very moment, um, my friend starts texting Jenna and says, add Dave to Facebook. You can start talking. We know it's long distance. It'll work out. It'll be fine. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way this is going to happen. So she adds me to Facebook, and we start private messaging each other on Facebook a couple of times. We start talking, and I think to myself, oh my goodness, I really like this girl. And so I lived in Edmonton, she lived in Chilliwack, BC, and six days after we became friends on Facebook, I asked her to be my girlfriend. I was 30 years old, I felt like I was 13. You can make fun of me all you want, but here's the bottom line. There was a girl who wanted to talk to me. And this was a new experience for me, this is fantastic. I wasn't gonna let her go. I knew she lived 1,200 kilometers away, but I thought, a girl this great, I gotta wrap this up quick. But right from the start, we knew there were going to be challenges. She was attending a large, urban, charismatic church. I was pastoring at a small, rural, ultra-conservative church. What could possibly go wrong? So after dating for about half a year, she sold her condo. She moved to Edmonton. She ended up getting a, church that, uh, a job at the church she grew up in, and she was patiently waiting for me to propose. We talked about worship often, but it didn't really hit home because on Sundays she worked at her church and I worked at my church. Eventually we got engaged and it was only a matter of time before reality would have to set in. And it didn't take long. This Bible college was doing their tours as uh, Bible colleges often do to promote their school and a group of traveling students came to her home church to do some drama, to do some music, to do some teaching and she thought, what a great opportunity for me to introduce my fiance to my church family. But for whatever reason, and I don't recall, I was not a happy camper. The drama wasn't bad, but the music was so different that I didn't know how to respond wasn't better, wasn't worse, it was just different. And I had a horrible attitude. I think during the worship service I had to go to the bathroom two or three times just so I could leave the main auditorium. And then on the way back I'd think, is there anybody to talk to? Why yes, I am Jenna's fiance. Tell me some stories about her. Eventually I'd make my way back into the chair, plop myself down and bodily express my bitterness towards life. Needless to say, my now wife was heartily thrilled with my attitude. So later that week, we're going on a walk, and she drops a bomb on me. And she says, Dave, one of the ladies um, who I think very highly of at the church said, you know, if that's the way your future husband views worship, maybe the two of you shouldn't get married. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot. 
what have I done? And I'm backpedaling and I'm trying to figure out what do I say to get through this awkward moment? What do I say so I can help her realize, no, I'm all in. We can make this happen. I know we can figure this out. Ever been there before? Sitting in an auditorium as a longtime Christian, checking things out for the first time and thinking to yourself, how can people worship like this? I don't know if this type is really for me. That's not real music. Real music is fill in the blank. Worship wars are fun, aren't they? Along with children's ministries, the two most hotly debated topics in church. The music's too loud, it's too quiet, there's too much energy, there's not enough energy. We need more hymns, we need more Chris Tomlin, we need more Gaither, we need more more Hillsong, we need more Blended, we need more surprises. Make up your mind. Perhaps what we most need is what I needed on that walk with my wife a little over six years ago. A bit of an attitude check. A reminder of who it is that we worship. While some of us are caught up in the volume or the style of music, others of us are singing with surrendered hearts, saying, Jesus, I just want more of you. If we want to live as all in, we need to find out what it means to embrace the author of our story. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew racks in front of you, and that's our gift for you this morning. If you'd rather uh, download something on your device, uh, we have an app that's going to come up on the PowerPoint screen behind me that we'd love for you to download and follow along. Sometimes the Bible can be a little bit confusing. The uh, New Testament uh, has the book of Luke. You can flip there. Um, The large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're in Luke chapter 10 verse 25. But as you flip there in your Bibles, let me hit the pause button for a moment. For most of you, today is like any other Sunday. You woke up, you got ready for church, you hopped in your car, and you drove here like you do every other week. And you think, when I get to church, it's going to be what I regularly expect. There's going to be some singing, there's going to be some announcements, they're going to collect an offering, someone's going to talk, and then I'm going to visit with my friends, maybe go out for lunch. For some of you, this is a relatively new experience. And it can feel a little bit weird if you don't normally go to church. Where else do you stand up and sing for 20 minutes? Outside of going to a comedy club or a conference, where do you hear someone stand and give a 30-minute monologue? Do the people here even like the same things I do? Maybe all of us can resonate with some of these questions about worship inside and outside the church. Why should I sing if I don't like the music? Why should I give my best at work when my boss is a jerk? You're asking me to love my family, my neighbor, my classmates, my coworkers. They don't even give a rip about me. In the mid-1900s, there was a British conference on comparative religions, and experts from around the world were debating what, if anything, made Christianity unique. They They began by eliminating possibilities. The incarnation... No other religions have a God come down to earth. Is it perhaps resurrection? Other religions have accounts of people returning from death. What about heaven? But nearly every religion has some idea of what the afterlife might be. The the debate went on and on until a man by the name of C.S. Lewis walked into the room and in a very British tone he said, what is all the rumpus about? When he was told the heated discussion was about Christianity's unique contribution to world religions, He answered simply, well, it's easy. It's grace. 
After some discussion, the experts had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love completely unconditional. The second book of the Bible is a book called Exodus. We find God's people, the Israelites, under Egyptian slavery. For 14 chapters, we read this incredible, miraculous story of how God rescues his chosen people out of Egypt, takes them across the sea, and into the desert. It's not until chapter 20 that God actually gives them the law. God saves and rescues before obedience is expected. God has a relationship with us that exists prior to the expectation of obedience. God saves us and then invites us to worship. The theme that we'll keep coming back to in grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. In worship, we give God what he does deserve. That leads us to Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you can even hear in that question, what do I have to do? Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is what generous worship looks like. This is what it means to embrace the author of the story for someone who came and loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins. He's offering us grace when we don't deserve it. So we offer him worship because he does. As humans, we're complex creatures, not easily compartmentalized and understanding there is certainly overlap between heart, soul, mind, and strength we're going to be looking at what each of those mean individually and see how they interact with one another. There's not going to be a lot of application at the end of the message, but throughout the whole message. The first part is this. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart means loving God with your choices. If you were to take a guess, how many choices do you think you make every single day? Just last year, there was a study at the University of Cornell that says the average person makes 35,000 choices every day, more than 200 on food alone. I remember growing up and watching my dad set out his clothes that he was going to wear the next day to work the night before and thinking to myself, why would you do that? Now I work, uh, wake up and I think, I don't even want to make any decisions right now and my clothes are neatly laid out just like my dad before me. Think about how many decisions you make. What time is your alarm going to go off? Are you going to hit snooze? How many times are you going to hit snooze? What are you going to wear? What are you going to have for breakfast? Which way are you going to take to work? Are you going to take a car? Are you going to take transit? Which route are you going to take to get to work? Are you going to grab coffee? Where are you going to grab coffee? What size of coffee are you going to grab? Are you going to get lunch at work? Are you going to bring lunch to work? What are you going to eat? What kind of healthy lifestyle do you want? A dozen questions and you haven't even got out of your house yet. Many of these decisions we don't even think about, but there's strategies behind them. Again, from the University of Cornell study. There's impulsiveness. I'm on a diet, but wow, do those donuts in the staff room look delicious. There's compliance. 
I really want Starbucks, but everybody else is going to Timmy's, so I guess that's where we're going. There's delegating. I don't want to make this decision. Can somebody else please make it for me? There's avoidance. In every decision-making process, the first option is do nothing. And there's balancing, weighing the pros and cons of the impact of each decision. But there's actually six items. The smaller decisions will often reflect the bigger decision. What is it that we most value? If we truly value a healthy lifestyle, the way we eat and the way we exercise are going to be impacted by that decision. If we, view, uh, if we value being great students or great workers, our choices are going to reflect that. And if God is truly the most important person in our life, if we want to be all in, our values are going to impact that. We can talk about priorities all we want, but in loving God with choices, there are really two strong indicators that show what kind of value we have towards God. Our bank statements and our calendars. Let's take an honest look at money. For most of us in this room, I would guess our biggest bill each month is something to do with housing. It's our mortgage, it's our rent, pack that together with our utilities, probably the biggest bill that you have each month. Certainly is at my house. After that, we'd probably agree it would be groceries. And then after housing and groceries, maybe you have a car payment, maybe you have extensive medical expenses. But after you get those three or so big boulders out of the way, where does most of your money go to next? Your answers are going to express your values. At the end of First Chronicles, the nation of Israel has given sacrificially to build an absolutely beautiful temple for worship. And the king prays this prayer. Who am I, O God? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything we have comes from God. It's not just about our paycheck. Our physical ability to work comes from God. The mind that we have comes from God. Our education comes from God. Our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, all of this comes from God. Embracing the author of our story and seeing how he has so changed and transformed our lives, would we not be so generous and give a portion of that back? In my previous environment, I had a young lady in our church named Jen. And Jen came to me in my office and she just started to cry. She was recently divorced, she was going to school, she bought a very modest home, was trying to raise her two children, had no help from her ex. As a church, we had the privilege of seeing Jen come to faith in Jesus during one of our worship services. A couple months later, we had the opportunity to hear her story and see her get baptized. And now she wanted to become a member of the church I was at, and she said, but pastor, people keep talking to me about giving 10% of my income. I don't have that kind of money. I had worked with her um, on her budget as a couple others had, and I knew that. There, was no, there just wasn't that much extra. I told her that nowhere does Jesus or his followers talk about 10%, but instead says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion. 
And I looked at her and said, what does generous giving at this time in your life look like? She came up with a number and you could just see the weight come off her back. Living generously is going to look very different for a woman in her 30s who's recently divorced, going to school, and raising two kids with no support from her ex than it does for two people in their late 50s with their mortgage paid, both working, and kids out of the house. It's not so much about how you give. It has much more to do with an equal sacrifice in your giving. But think about what we've already seen and heard about this morning. Todd came up who grew up in this church and said, God has so impacted my life at Ellerslie that I'm going to give one month of my time to go overseas and to be a medical missionary and tell people about the good news of Jesus and heal them. On Friday night, we had more than 50 young elementary girls having pajama and pancakes. And I talked to one of the girls this morning. She said, it was awesome. A couple Fridays ago, we had our biggest launch of youth ministry in the last few years. 75 youth, not counting any of the leaders. Right now in the fireside room, we have our biggest alpha, which is an exploration of the Christian faith through interactive sessions, than we have had since Mel and LaDonna have been here. God is moving as he's given generously to us. Well, we give generously back to him. What about your time? A few years ago, I was involved with a handful of other pastors to meet with a town councilor to discuss a new initiative for a youth hangout. Problem was, the finances from the town only covered the building and its contents. They couldn't afford to pay any workers. And so the town had blitzed the local paper and had done what it needs to do to raise up volunteers to come and serve these youth. Not one person stepped forward. So one of these town counselors happened to attend one of the local churches, and he said, I know, I'll ask for a meeting with four or five of the local pastors, and we'll see if we can get something going. And so I was one of the pastors that he met with, and we went from zero volunteers in the community to the four or five churches staffing the entire youth hangout. The same man who wrote about giving generously also writes about living generously in 1 Corinthians He says this, there's different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Every single person in this room has gifts, talents, and personal experiences to bring Jesus into all of life. When you hear about what's happening in children's ministry, what's happening in our youth ministry, when you see what's happening on this platform with our worship team, do you say to yourself, I wanna be a part of that? Perhaps you think, you know, I'm kind of a behind the scenes person. Can I work in the tech booth? Can I serve in food services? Does the building need more painting? I'd love to serve in that way. Perhaps you're thinking, I'm, I just wanna go on this Christian journey with somebody. Are there groups I can join where we talk about what it means to live as a Christian, to understand the Bible, and to encourage each other? Absolutely there is. Come see me at the Connect desk. But we can also go beyond these church walls. Can you coach your kid's hockey team? Can you be a part of the parent-teacher association? Can you serve on your condo board? Can you be involved in the local arts scene? Will you say to yourself, when I go to work, when I go to school, where I raise my kids, I'm gonna give my best 
for Jesus. So many ways to serve God with our time and our finances. We need to love God with our choices. We also need to love God with our emotions. Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle, and he writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. We do not worship a stoic and a passionless God, but one who reveals himself along the whole lines of the emotional spectrum. The Ten Commandments, which were given to those Israelites shortly after they came out of Egypt, uh, the second commandment goes like this in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. On the other side, after Jesus sent out his disciples to do some ministry on their own, the disciples came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. We were out sharing the good news and we cast out demons in your name and we healed people in your name and we talked to people about the hope that you have to offer and people responded. To which Jesus himself responds in Luke chapter 10, full of joy and through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Another author writes about Jesus and says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus meets us in the midst of our emotions and he offers us hope and he offers us healing. Human trafficking should make us angry. When we hear about millions of babies being aborted, we should weep when we learn that a loved one has passed away. It's okay to enter a time of mourning. We worship an emotion-filled God. We're called to worship God, to embrace this author of the incredible story with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and that includes our emotions. One of my favorite verses from Romans talks about this, and the author says in Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Imagine my relationship with my wife was all head, no heart. So I drive home after a long day at the office and I pull into the garage and I take out my phone and I decide to text her, Jenna, I love you. Then I walk in the door and she goes, well, that's a pretty interesting way to sweep me off my feet. Here, let me tell you about what happened today. Our four-year-old and our two-year-old were sitting at the kitchen table and they were doing their puzzles and they were coloring and then suddenly the four-year-old said, look, mommy, baby is walking. And I respond, it's a big deal. First two kids walked. Eventually the third kid's going to walk. What did you make for supper? <laughs> then a couple weeks later, I show up to the counselor with a black eye and say, my wife wants more emotion out of me. Jenna doesn't just want my mind. She doesn't just want my choices. She wants all of me. She wants me to walk in after a long day and give her a hug and give her a kiss and listen to her day and tell me about mine. She wants to see me engage with our kids and play on the floor and wrestle with them. She wants all of me. You might know where this is going. I had Jenna read my sermon intro. And I said, do you think I represented everybody fairly? That event happened six and a half years ago. 
I was 30 years old, leading a church, a respected leader in the community, and I had the same attitude as a toddler. The music was different, certainly. I didn't know the songs, it was a different atmosphere. But the people around me were fully engaged in worshiping Jesus. When we come to the auditorium on Sunday mornings, we are worshiping a great and glorious king. Where God the Father says to God the Son, I want to send you on a rescue mission. Go down to earth, become fully human, so that you can show people what it means to worship me. Live a perfect and holy life. Eventually die an excruciating death on the cross for their sins. Rise from the grave three days later. Ascend into heaven and tell them that you're coming back. With what God has done for us, how can we sit there with arms folded, hands in our pockets and saying, God, impress me? We don't deserve God's grace. He does deserve our worship. I'm not asking you to raise your hands. That might not be part of your personality. If it is, wonderful. But I am asking you to think about when you enter this auditorium on Sunday mornings, we're here to worship a king. May our posture reflect it as such. Some weeks you might like the music more than others. Me too. But let us worship well, because the world is watching. Once again, going beyond our church doors. One of the favorite books on my shelf, I've only read it once, maybe I need to read it again. It's a philosophy book written by a Christian. And he talks about what the world most needs. He says they don't need this incredible mind, they don't need this over-the-top emotion, but what they do need is for us to engage with both, with our heart and our mind, to invite people into our homes, to laugh with them, to party with them, to cry with them, to listen to them. The world is watching. We need to worship God with all of our emotions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. How do we love our God with our minds? Back in the spring, I stood before you and my entire introduction was about the upcoming Marvel movie, Infinity War. And I debated, can I tell another comic book illustration? And I thought, yeah, I can. Anyone who's following the Marvel Cinematic Universe knew that back in May, it was part one of part two of the Avengers taking on the intergalactic villain, Thanos. And if you followed the Marvel Universe at all, you knew there were two parts, which means, of course, at the end of the first movie, the Avengers aren't going to have one. I knew that going in. I knew that when I sat down with my friend. I knew that throughout the movie. I was curious how the first movie was going to end. And it doesn't end well. And I left and I was angry. What do you mean Thanos is going to win? What do you mean that's what happens to the world? What about Spider-Man? <laughs> I was talking about it with the staff team this past week. And one of the staff members said, my brother sat in the theater and he just wept. <laughs> okay. What on earth does this have to do with loving God with your mind? Here's what I think. Our mind is hardwired for truth. The enemy is never supposed to win. And so when we're surrounded with all this difficult, this 
hardship, these challenges, these things that keep getting in our way, we think to ourselves, but there's got to be something better. There's got to be something to look forward to. Of course, Batman is supposed to beat the Joker. Of course, Harry is supposed to defeat Voldemort. Of course, Frodo's supposed to destroy the ring. Of course, the Avengers are supposed to win. And of course, Cinderella is supposed to get the prince. I don't know who coined the phrase, but they said this, Christianity is the greatest myth ever told. Except it's true. And we love God with our minds by looking forward to a new and better life that's going to take place. I try to do a lot when I'm preaching. I want to be faithful to the text. I want to have engaging illustrations so you don't fall asleep in 35 minutes. I want to give you something to think about, something to feel, something to do. But every time I stand here, I want to wrap up or at least have a portion of my message that points to the hope that we have in Jesus. By God's grace, if I can do that well, if I can follow in Mel's footsteps who goes and preaches regularly, our minds will be transformed to tell about the good news and the hope that we have in Jesus. Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We don't deserve God's grace. He does deserve our worship. As we study the scriptures, as we read great books, as we engage in community, as we listen to life-changing sermons and lectures, our minds are sharpened, our eyes unveiled to see the truth. Then as we head into our workplaces, our schools, the places where we hang out and have fun, we can tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus, engage them intellectually, engage them with our minds, engage them with our hearts. The world needs to hear this truth so that they can be set free. We've covered heart, soul, and mind, which leaves us with strength. How do we love God with our bodies? I remember sitting in my university philosophy, introduction to philosophy class. And we're sitting there, there's, I don't know, 50 people or so in the room, and our philosophy professor says, put a pen on your desk. So everybody takes out a pen and puts it on their desk. And he says, now I want you to move it with your mind. And everybody kind of laughs. And he goes, now I'm serious. Move that with your mind. The relationship between the mind and body was obviously the lecture of the day. We had 50 students staring intently at their pen, trying to make it move. I attended a Christian university, and one of the girls puts up her hand and says, Professor, what about that verse in the Bible that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? And he goes, I'm trying to talk about body and mind. You add two more to the mixture? But if we take out by our minds and, and tell our bodies to reach out and grab the pen, we can do it. Will we give all of ourselves to God? Colossians 3.17 might be my favorite verse in the Bible. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Certainly there's significant overlap when we talk about all of us being all in. And I mentioned earlier in the message that everything we have comes from God, but I want to really unpack the magnitude of that statement. It's easy to be a little bit caught up and say, well, you know what, I have worked really hard. 
to accomplish and to get where I am today. Who gave you that work ethic? God did. You might say, no, 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 it wasn't God. It was my professors, it was my friends, it was my family. They encouraged me to be that way. Awesome. Who brought your professors, your family members, your friends into your life? God did. And when we sit there and we think, wow, I have accomplished so much. This is where I am with my job. This is where I am with my family. This is all the great stuff that I have. All of that comes from God. God is truly the author of our story. And everything we have comes from him. His request is simple. Give it back. Mark chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. This request from Jesus isn't made in a vacuum. He has lived this out. When he's asking us to love him with our choices, he has already done that. In Jesus Christ, he recognized, I'm going to make the choice to go down to earth on a rescue mission. He's going to love us by, our, by his emotions and showing us what grace looks like in the ultimate act of compassion. God loved us by giving us great teaching with his brilliant mind and pages upon pages upon pages have been written about his teachings. And he loved us by sacrificing his body on the cross. We don't deserve God's grace, but he deserves our worship. Everything we have to offer. Yes, this impacts what happens on Sunday mornings, but it also impacts how we worship when we leave these doors. This idea of being all in can be a little overwhelming, so let me break it down into a bite-sized question. What is your next step in following Jesus? I mentioned there would be application throughout the message, but here's a quick summary. Is it time for you, and if you're married, you and your spouse, to talk about what it means to live generously with your finances? Is it time to say, you know what, I think we can give a little bit more to the church a little bit more to this missions organization, a little bit more to something that, is, something that is on our hearts? Is it possible that all your time is in the community or all your time is at the church and maybe it's time for those to get mingled a little bit? Is it time for you to say, God, my next step is changing the way I worship on Sunday mornings and preparing my own mind when I come in? Perhaps that means being more engaged with my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends and family members, inviting them into my house to laugh, to play games, to have fun, or to just sit and talk. Maybe you love great books and you read mostly novels. Is it time to challenge yourself with a great Christian author who will push you and make you think differently? Is it time to engage your classmates, your coworkers, with what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Maybe invite them to Alpha. What does it mean to be all in? And what is your next step in following Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this sermon series, All In. It's pretty intimidating. All you ask for is all of us. So God, please forgive us when we come to worship and our minds and our hearts and our bodies 
aren't really into it. Remind us that we are worshiping you as a great and glorious king. But God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with boldness and courage to go forward from this point and to worship you both inside this church and outside these walls for your glory so that you would be exalted above all things. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.